This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hi, friend. Welcome to this episode of Decoding Obesity. We discussed some aspects of management of obesity recently. Continuing with that discussion, I wanted to take a deep dive into bariatric surgery in the younger population. To discuss this, I have with me Dr. Jennifer Paisley and Dr. Alan Brown. Dr. Jennifer Paisley is both certified in internal medicine and pediatrics and is specializing in obesity at Unity Point Health in Grinnell, Iowa. She is the current pediatric medical advisor of the Adolescent Bariatric Surgery Program. In this role, she works with children and their families on comprehensive obesity treatment as well as preparation of pediatric patients for bariatric surgery. She is a current member of the Obesity Medicine Association's Pediatric Committee where she helped develop the most recent edition of the Pediatric Obesity Algorithm. Locally, she is an advocate for programs targeting food insecurity and helping teach families about the use of seasonal foods to promote improvements in health. In her free time, she also runs a small hobby farm with her husband and children. Dr. Alan Brown is a pediatric and adolescent weight management specialist and pediatric surgeon. He has worked in the development of treatment algorithms for pediatric obesity for 12 years as clinical director of the New Hope Pediatric and Adolescent Weight Management Program at UIC Medical Center in Chicago. Following this, he was the attending physician at the Center for Healthy Weight and Nutrition at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And he's also the founder of the Pediatric Weight Management Program at Carl Clinic in Urbana. Dr. Brown developed and served as principal investigator of the FDA IDE number no. 1 to study the adjustable gastric band in adolescents with severe obesity. Dr. Brown is the author and co-author of numerous articles, chapters, and guidelines on the treatment of pediatric obesity. He is a member of the OMA Pediatric Committee, Section on Obesity of the AAP, the Pediatric Committee of the Obesity Society, and the Pediatric Committee of ASMBS. Dr. Brown is certified as a diplomat of American Board of Obesity Medicine. Currently, his focus is advocacy and policy development for improved treatment for children with obesity. Welcome, both of you. Well, thank you for having us. I'm very happy to be here. So it's so exciting to have, you know, both of you who are kind of working with pediatric population and, you know, specifically with bariatric surgery uh, with respect to, you know, the pediatric population. We hear about, you know, surgical procedures for the adults. And obviously, I'm not trained in pediatrics, so I'm not very well versed with, with this whole pediatric obesity and, you know, the surgical procedures for pediatric population. Let's just start by talking about, you know, when is metabolic surgery really considered in children? So I can try to feel that one. So when I evaluate patient, I am looking at a couple of factors. One is their age and two is their maturity level. So when I'm working with a family, if I have a patient for our program, we have to be 14 and above, and that cutoff can vary a little bit depending on your center. But I'm looking at a fairly mature 14-year-old who has a BMI that on a pediatric growth curve is generally at the 140th of the 99th percentile or above without a comorbidity or someone who has a 120th of the 99th percentile with a comorbidity like type 2 diabetes, 
high blood pressure, orthopedic concerns, sleep apnea. As medically, those are the populations that we would see kind of the most benefit in from thinking about use of metabolic and bariatric surgery to help them with their disease. Dr. Brown, have there been any studies on, you know, any procedures done in a younger population than 14 years of age? Yes. And Jenny and I have talked a little bit. She knows me a little bit. And as a pediatric surgeon, I've never asked a patient how old they are. I don't. I ask, in my mind, what I do is I look at them and say, can I help you with a surgical procedure? Now, my background currently in obesity medicine as a pediatric obesity medicine doctor is I, I've kind of had to open my eyes up because and come to realize that metabolic and bariatric surgery is really one of our tools as we try to help children. And it's been a bit of a battle for me personally, because when I got to, when I started in this, I got to know the kids. They were all adolescents because I was doing a study for the NIH or for FDA looking at adolescents. But I got to know the kids and I realized that these were just regular old kids and they were afflicted by a pretty bad disease. And so that the age question, I find that it, well, sometimes the smoke comes out my ears. You can edit that out, but that's true. <laughs> because the age question is, to me, is really a symptom of the old bias and stigma that used to exist for kids, that they could get over it if their mother would only treat them right and they do the right things. you know. And I think this group all knows that that's really not true, that it is a derangement of their energy regulatory system. So, but you still have to look carefully at which tool you're going to use. Now, the best data that we have right now comes from Saudi Arabia, interestingly enough. But now the Middle Eastern population is way worse affected by the disease of obesity than we are, interestingly enough. But anyway, so there's a pediatric surgeon over there whom I know who has published a number of papers, and he's looked at some of the questions associated with age. One of the questions associated with age is what would it do to their growth? And it turns out their growth is more normal. In other words, you can predict the growth of a child by looking at their mom and dad. And uh, we've known for a long time that actually what happens with obesity is that you close your epiphyseal plates early and you go through your growth spurt early and thus you really don't reach the linear height that you would normally reach if you didn't have the disease. Well, he's shown that when he does his surgery on and he does his surgeries, the reports have been down to age four or five. Oh, wow. And that the growth curve is much more normal. The second thing that people have worried about is what happens to sexual maturation as the adolescents go through that period of their life. And those of us who've taken care of that age group know that the disease of obesity really messes that whole process up tremendously, microphalluses and terrible disturbances of menstrual cycles, either too much or too little. And he's demonstrated with his population anyway, that he's operated on, that that process is normalized. Now, in the big picture, that makes sense to me because we're taking children who are ill with the disease of obesity and we're making them healthier. So it makes sense to me that their growth would be more normal and that their sexual maturation would be more normal. But when this was started almost 20 years ago now, when the first recommendations came out, there were many concerns. And those concerns associated the treatment of the disease of obesity with starvation. 
I see. Okay. And as we know now, actually successful treatment of the disease of obesity is not starvation. And if you look at the body's response to starvation in terms of stress, in terms of hunger, in terms of cravings, in terms of GLP-1, when you do metabolic and bariatric surgery in a population and you, you compare somebody who's starving with somebody who's successfully losing weight with metabolic and bariatric surgery, all those responses are reversed. And so we even have physiological evidence that successful management of obesity with metabolic and bariatric surgery is actually not starvation. Interesting. When you see this getting approved for younger population, then, I mean, if it's showing success even for children as young as, uh, as four years of age, especially, you know, in the Middle East. So I would say that depended on your region, too. So right. where I'm at in Iowa, we're the only center until the past <laughs> year when our main pediatric hospital came online. We were the only place in the state for probably the last 20 years that was even willing to consider someone under 18. So really, I think your age cutoff is going to depend on the center in your region if you are seeking out pediatric or adolescent bariatric surgery. I believe when I've done, you know, looking for guidelines for our program, I know Stanford, I think, went down as young as 12 at one point in time. I know Boston Children's probably has a different cutoff. Texas might have a different cutoff. Cincinnati may have a different cutoff. And so it's really going to depend on what the group in that region is willing to consider. But I'd, I'd agree with Alan. I don't know that there's ever going to be a strict cannot do it here. I think that's just going to be as more and more pediatric surgeons and pediatricians get comfortable with more advanced tools to treat obesity. We're going to see younger and younger options pop up. And Jenny's exactly right. If you look at the ASMBS, the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery guidelines, they go down to about an age of 10 with anything lower being, you can consider it under the age of 10, but from 10 on up. And that was a big battle. We, we struggled with that one a lot, but we used the WHO definition of adolescence, which starts at 10 remarkably enough. And so we used that, but more remarkably, Subsequent to the ASMBS recommendations for metabolic and bariatric surgery on children is the AAP recommendations. Sarah Armstrong and her colleagues there, when they put out the, because we now have AAP recommendations for metabolic and bariatric surgery, they've dodged the whole question, which is the way to do it. Just as Jenny says, you really have to individualize it to the patient and the situation. There are kids with genetically identified MC4R, leptin receptor deficiency, leptin deficiency, some of that can be treated, but some of it can't. And so rather than let the child get sicker and sicker and sicker, you have to make a decision, what can we do here? We also are looking very closely, and people like Aaron Kelly at the University of Minnesota and, and Claudia Fox, his partner there, looking at pharmacotherapy, because uh, how is the pharmacotherapy going to affect our algorithms as we look at the different tools that are available? The semaglutide, obviously, in adults versus where the data right. is, is amazing. And there are other drugs in preparation or in study, now not studied in kids because the kids always get studied last, which is another, right. <laughs> which is a whole other topic, right? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> these drugs are turning out to be very successful for adults with obesity. Right. How's that going to work with kids? Another thing about the kids is there is a spontaneous resolution rate in children. 
not in adults, but there is in kids. In other words, if you take a six-year-old or seven-year-old and they aren't one of the genetically identified ones, a certain percentage of those are going to change sometime in the next 10 years or so, and their body composition will become much more healthy. Most of them won't, but some do. So you say, hmm, now there's an issue because if our therapy is permanent or the changes that we've, right. the changes that we've rendered on the body are permanent, and this was one who was going to spontaneously resolve, we missed, you know? And right. So that there is a certain attraction to things that perhaps can be adjusted, perhaps can be reversed, and things like that in the pediatric age group as the child declares themselves, are they one that are going to spontaneously remit or not? Right, because surgery is going to be permanent, right? Surgery is once it's done, it's a done deal. And, and reversing it is a huge, a huge yep. task in itself. It can be done, but it's another surgical procedure. It's basically more dangerous than the first time around as a surgeon. I know that. Do it right the first time because you don't want to go back. <laughs> it's harder right. the second time around. <laughs> right. So let's say somebody, you know, there's a kid who's kind of, declared himself or herself and now the kid needs surgery the bariatric center you know the physicians and the people who are working in that center have kind of figured out that this is the best thing for this kid what is the preparation that really goes into all of this so when i have a child who's been identified you know in our program oftentimes they will come to me sometimes it's from an outside general pediatrician, sometimes it's from the specialist, sometimes it's from actually our surgeons, and I'm going to work with them pretty closely over about six months to two years, depending on their age. And oftentimes what I'm doing ahead of time is it's meeting with my dietitian. there's a behavioralist, sometimes I'm able to wrap in and bring in a physical therapist, and we kind of really solidify the entire foundation of the pyramid. So I'm making sure that from a medical standpoint, if they have diabetes or if they've got sleep apnea or high blood pressure, that they're all as well controlled as we can get them. And then from a lifestyle standpoint, it's really that long-term education. And I'm really focusing at that point in time on making sure they understand the long-term healthy eating approach. And so it's understanding regular small meals, healthy active lifestyles, and that's what we focus on. So I will tell families, your kid may not lose any weight during this period of time, and that's not our goal. Our goal is to ensure you know what to expect so that you can do this for the rest of your time with your child and that your child can do this then after. For some, I may try some medications before surgery to maybe pull 5 to 10% off if I can, or really what I'm trying to do is stabilize their growth curve. And so for our program, that time I'm working with them could really vary depending on their age. I've had some people who I've worked with for years before I sent wow. them over to my surgeon and I have others like one today, it was seven months and I knew at month four that this was what we needed to do. And so it was finishing out the months required by their health insurance. So that's the other piece right. that'll dictate it is oftentimes <laughs> yeah, their of insurance policy here <laughs> in the United States will dictate one, if it's covered in that age group and two, what the timeline is required in terms of those well-documented medical management visits before they can go over to the surgery arm. Jenny's done a great job of describing how surgery is merely a part of pediatric weight management. And, and that's so right. important for people to understand. Pediatric weight management goes on before the surgery and after the surgery. Surgery after. doesn't exist by itself. It's not a silver bullet. It's an important tool, but the family right. and, 
And everybody needs to understand that question. And that's what she describes so nicely is that there are the bottom of the pyramid she's talking about is healthy living and trying to work on some of the stress factors, the sleep factors, the social factors, the upstream factors that are affecting the energy, energy regulatory system. Once that's maximized, then you have to decide, where am I? Where are we with the complications that this child has? Where is the family with this whole thing? And that's when you say, maybe we will add surgery. Now, we're not at a point yet where we can do that too well, as Jenny well knows, because we haven't got a real agreement or or real coordination yet between the surgical programs and the pediatric weight management programs. But it's going to happen. And I've lived through some of this as a pediatric surgeon in areas like pediatric oncology and cystic fibrosis and things like that. It's going to happen that everybody's going to get together and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's all get together on this one. We need a ringleader. We've got to have all the tools at play, but the different tools have to realize they're different tools. And they are. They're very important. And the family has to also understand, you know, where everybody is in in that system. And I think we're lucky in pediatrics, in a sense, because we've done a lot of that sort of teamwork over the years for different medical problems. Right. And that's very important. It's, It's a teamwork. And I think you said it very rightly that it's a part of the entire weight management program for that person. It's not end all be all and the weight management like jennifer mentioned it starts six months to two years before actually getting to surgery which is important to understand as well you know this raised a question in my mind about about this whole preparation for surgery during this preparation period have you ever encountered say a child who you think you know even though he qualifies he or she qualifies because of the bmi but maybe because of other extraneous factors does not qualify for the surgery barring insurance of course Oh, all the time. I would say when I'm working with, and it's not even just for kids, I have the pleasure of also working with adults. I do both. And the big things that will bring people to me is oftentimes from a mental health standpoint. So if we have an uncontrolled eating disorder, the most common that I'll see both in pediatrics and some of my adults is oftentimes a lot of untreated emotional eating, poor management of prior traumatic experiences, or binge eating, those really have to be well controlled and actively in treatment before we would consider clearing them. Because it not only can cause what we think about weight recidivism afterwards, but in that acutely healing process, if you have a big flare of a binge eating disorder in that initial recovery part after surgery, you can actually end up having quite a few complications. And so it's really identifying those people, making sure they have great treatment and great support to succeed, and then letting them know it's not that you can't ever have surgery, but it just might not be your right now. I think Jenny once again brings up the teamwork that has to be involved there because there are medications that are approved for binge eating disorders that if used in the right patient, my colleague Valerie O'Hara here in the state of Maine and a couple of others are working on reporting this, how to find them, but they've had some spectacular results with the drug and the the patients don't fit all the diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder. And the drug is not a well-known drug for anti-obesity. They've had some excellent results with it. Now it's still a chronic disease. In other words, another question that comes up from time to time to time, and perhaps you are gonna ask us, but you know, when do you stop your 
pediatric weight management. Well, you shift over to adult weight management, and that, that's when you that's when you stop your pediatric <laughs> weight management. <laughs> you go, you go see true. Jenny that's and have a scar. <laughs> that's my bread and butter. So uh, I do. I actually have the pleasure of working with a four-generation bariatric surgery family. So my surgeon that recruited me where I'm at was one of the very first actually trained under Ed Mason when he was a resident. And because our center is so old, I have people where I have seen great grandma, grandma, mom, and the child all in kind of almost one week's time span. And they have all, with the exception of the child, have had a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. Oh, wow. In terms of the procedures, what procedures are approved for pediatric obesity? Well, you bring up another good question, approved for. Who approves? Now, if you talk about medications, of course, we're under the gun of the FDA, but there's another discussion there because in pediatrics, most of our stuff, most of our pharmacotherapy in pediatrics in general is off-label. I'm not talking about obesity, I'm talking about just pediatrics. Tylenol's never been approved or studied under the age of two. So we're used to being off-label. In fact, the AAP has a paper in 2014 about how do you handle that question of off-label. But anyway, so nobody approves surgeries per se. I think that we're very cognizant of children. And as one of my professors said, if we do it right, the child gets to live a whole life. So this is what's led to the growth of the laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy, because it's the the least disruptive to the anatomy in the abdomen, but seems to have pretty darn good results. There are certain patients that are candidates for Rui gastric bypass for, for a few reasons. I don't think that the duodenal switch and that category of metabolic and bariatric surgery has much of a following for kids. Those are big guns, and there are places in the adult world where when properly managed, especially postoperatively, they seem to do pretty well. I think that for good reason that something as straightforward as a laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy is by far the most popular for in the childhood age group. I see. And, you know, we talked about surgery pre-care. What about post-care? So somebody has a, you know, a child has the sleeve gastrectomy. What's the post-care that's required? Of course, I'm not talking about the acute in-hospital care. This is for you, Jennifer. What about, you know, the change in their diet, the change, how frequently do you need to monitor them? And what all do you need to monitor for? That's a great question. So, you know, it's going to be fairly similar to kind of what we do in adults. And so there are set kind of post-operative surgical visits and of course, staged dietary plans as you refeed kind of a, a surgical gut that has been altered. And so in our program, they're going to generally be seen initially by my surgeons for the first three months before they come back to me. And that is the time where they're going to manage that acute surgical procedure while they advance their diet and kind of get them permission towards adding in more solid foods again. I still see them at least once every quarter. And then I have some that I see every six months to every year. And that's largely going to be based on if I re-layered on pharmacotherapy. So again, we go back to kind of our emotional eaters and our binge eaters. Well, that medicine helped them treat it. That medicine probably needs to come back because that surgical tool is not going to help that medical part. And so depending on that role, I'm still going to see them every quarter. We're going to do vitamin panels. So depending on the procedure, we're going to need to ensure compliance with our nutritional recommendations for multivitamins, iron, vitamin D, B12. 
And then the other important part when you have to think about adolescent populations, of course, teenage girls. So we're going to talk about things like birth control, pregnancy prevention, and those other kind of nuances that can really be um, drastically altered in that initial time frame. And so the long term isn't too terribly different from that preterm because it's very similar. It's reinforcing the foundation. But what's really cool is that if they had type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure or sleep apnea, it's actually pulling off medications and deprescribing potentially things they don't need anymore. And that is probably the most rewarding part that you get to see as you're watching these kids kind of grow up and not need some of these other things anymore. Yeah, I think you're echoing the sentiment of a lot of the obesity specialists out there. Deprescribing medications for other chronic diseases is probably the most rewarding experience, not just for the prescribers, but also for the patients, because they're coming off of a bunch of medications as they're getting treated. Yeah, and then you got to remember being a teenager and really even going through your 20s, that's like a super stressful time, no matter what your chronic disease background looks like. And so especially in my experience when working with adolescents and young adults, you're also guiding them through big stressing lifestyle changes and really ensuring that they have great reinforcement of healthy coping right. skills and to be the most successful they can with whatever tools they're using to help control their disease. You know, Jennifer, when somebody has bariatric surgery, say sleeve gastrectomy, a lot of times they'll initially start with small frequent meals, right? How do you help them kind of tackle that with their school uh, schedule because in the school it's going to be tricky to kind of have those small frequent meals throughout the day so how do they ma how do you manage that i write a lot of letters to the school <laughs> to basically force the school <laughs> to let them follow a schedule it's just like adults who work 12s you know most of us who are in healthcare can certainly remember what it's like to be a resident or to be a nurse on the floor you know, you're lucky if you get your 10 minutes to even go to the bathroom, let alone drink water. And so just like I've written letters for adults, I'm going to write a lot of letters for kids and basically allow them to eat on study halls, give them protected time in the nurse's office, reinforce with their coaches if they're in sports, the importance of letting them kind of have a meal before practice or, you know, letting them eat right after. And so it sometimes just involves a lot of letters. Around here, most of my patients are still allowed to carry a water bottle throughout the day since you still have to keep liquids separated from your meals. Sure. But I have occasionally had to write for the ability for them to have a protein shake instead of water during the day so they could get it in. And so I it's just see. writing a lot I of see. letters so that the school district is like an IEP. You've got to have it in writing and it's, it's just like any other chronic medical condition. This is got what it. they need got to it. be successful in private school. Got it. Eviscar, we have other chronic issues in pediatrics that we take care of kids for. I'm, I hope, I'm not saying that to insult you. I'm just saying we're experienced with chronic management with special sure. kids, and we figured out ways to have them go to school. I've had kids go to school. On, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> on total parenteral nutrition, you know, and such. But I also, oh, wow. in my pediatric surgery career, did a number of anti-reflux procedures, and the post-operative care of an anti-reflux patient is actually a little more complicated than with a laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy. And the dietary changes that they go through and, and those sorts of things. So we've been through a, a number of those processes before, and we have to learn how to work the pre and post-operative, as you've been covering, issues right. of the metabolic and bariatric surgery with the pediatric weight management. And uh, it's very important that, that they are closely coordinated. And, and a wonderful group, the adolescents, I love adolescents, 
and the young adults. But I had a nurse practitioner who worked with me for a number of years, and she had the disease herself, interestingly enough. But she also wrote a very moving and important paper on how do you work with the adolescents with the fact that they have the disease. And of course, this is a question that diabetologists, cystic fibrosis, others have had to work with too, because children are children and having a chronic disease is not what children are designed for. (laughs) Right. That's true. That is true. And I think it's also important, like I keep hammering the point on my podcast, that it is a chronic disease, which is important to understand as well. It's not necessarily one person's fault that they have this. So we need to help them and kind of create a system around them so that they can be successful as individuals. Oh, very much so. And we, we, of course, have to talk to the family and the child about the disease of obesity, about the fact that it's not their fault. They're not doing it to themselves. But in 2022, this is really cool because now, compared to when I started in this 15, 20 years ago, we have so many more tools and there's so much, we understand them so much better. And it's a really exciting time to help the kids, I think, and their families. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Brown, what are some of the side effects or potential side effects of, you know, bariatric surgery for children? Because especially, you know, once it's done, we talked about it, it's done. It's a, it's a done deal. Reversal is a whole huge complex issue. So what are some of the things that can have like long-term detrimental effects on the pediatric population? Well, the operations that are commonly done, the laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy and the rear gastric bypass, are very well tolerated in general over the long term. And the issues having to do with growth and development, issues having to do with sexual maturation, I think that we've managed to dispel most of that. There are issues, especially with the Ruwai gastric bypass, with vitamins and minerals that have to be monitored. And that's part of sticking with your weight management program. Right. Also, these people, when you do a laparoscopic procedure, I'm old enough to have done surgery before laparoscopy. So I know before we used to leave a big sign on their abdomen, I was here. (laughs) When you do a laparoscopic procedure, there's a couple of little marks, four or five little marks that somebody in a casual physical exam might go right by. So it's extremely important that the fact that they had the metabolic and bariatric surgery be part of their medical and surgical history because the long-term complications of bowel obstruction ulcers, and things like that, they do exist. So that patient is a special patient because of their medical and surgical history, which needs to accurately follow them the rest of their life. Right. And I, I think that's important to kind of, you know, make sure that that's a part of, of their history, that they had, you know, the surgical procedure. Because at least, in, you know, in the adult population, we do see patients who come in with complications, even though the sex surgery may have been successful, we do see, you know, some of the complications. The challenge becomes that, you know, when you, when you have a surgery in a pediatric population, they are probably going to live longer. So, you know, they go, they're going to suffer from the complications for longer. And I think that's a more challenging situation. And hence this question that I ask, because Every time a procedure is done, we always have to weigh the risks and the benefits. Exactly, exactly. And and when I do a laparoscopic procedure, some of the procedures that I do in newborns or younger kids, six months or a year later, there is no scar because they heal up so beautifully. There's no scar. And so yet I was in there and I moved their anatomy around. I created scar tissue. And in the case of the uh, Ruai gastric bypass, the risk of internal hernia type 
things, those things are very real and they're real for the rest of their lives. And that's why right. increasingly we have to have accurate ways to have effective ways to have an accurate medical and surgical history follow people nowadays. Right, right. And that's important. Jennifer, so what are some of the non-weight loss kind of things that you see post-surgery in your patients? So those are, there's quite a bit. So I think probably the biggest part for me is actually the mental health improvement a lot of those kids will have. It is um, significant changes in depression, self-esteem, kind of confidence and even doing things. I had, I had one child um, who I had worked with for about four years before she was finally ready for her sleeve gastrectomy. And we had done kind of almost every medication under the sun. And she just really, really struggled. I sent her to a surgical procedure and her biggest goal was to lose enough weight so she could go on the rides at an amusement park for her 18th birthday, which was the one thing she had always wanted to do was ride the roller coasters and to watch her then light up after she came back and said, you know, Dr. Paisley, I got to go to the amusement park and for the first time in my life got to sit on the roller coaster rides without being told I was too heavy. And it was awesome. And you just see them light up and do those things. So the mental health is probably the biggest part that I would say I see. And of course, then there's the other physical parts of not needing a CPAP machine anymore and <laughs> really being able to exercise. I've got one little girl who is probably going to have surgery in the next couple of years. She's only 10 right now, but she has Blount's disease. And so being able to jump and run without worrying about, you know, her growth plates in her knees and I'm hopeful that she gets to experience that because she hasn't really been able to for the last year and a half. So, wow. yeah. And add to that, the reversal of diabetes and hypertension, right? Oh, well, I mean, those are, those are great too, but watching them light up. <laughs> in the patients I bumped into, there's a fellow named John Dixon, whom you may or may not have heard of. He's an Australian and uh, did a lot of advising to me and a lot of other people when I was early in my career using the adjustable gastric band and things. But one of the things that John said was, make your clinic a haven where they can go, whether they gain weight, don't lose weight, or lose weight. And I began to notice in my clinic after six months or a year that the kids over the first three to six months change. Now, they haven't changed their weight because you're only starting to get into them on there, but they change. The girls come in with makeup on, their hair done, their eyes sparkling. The boys come in with the hoodie back and they don't go over in the corner with the hoodie down. And as a matter of fact, the new ones who come over with the hoodie down, the old guys descend on them and they go get them. <laughs> I happen to have, be lucky to have a special common waiting room for all my, for my patients, just for my patients, which was a very wonderful thing. And we used a system where they would run a gauntlet of providers. So they were there all morning or all afternoon, depending on what they were. So they had to figure out something to do. But you see a tremendous mental health advantage to the clinic. For the first mm -hmm. time in their existence, they were respected. They were loved. We mm -hmm. were happy to see them. And that really can change lives and changes lives immensely. After the weight loss, the girls, I'm sure Jenny's had this too, but the girls never told us their weight. They would oh, tell yeah, us- no, their, they don't like their, to even look on the scale. Like they close their eyes because <laughs> they just don't want to see it. They would tell us their dress size. <laughs> and one girl went to college, in fact, she went to college in Iowa, and she wrote us one day, she says, I looked in the mirror and I have a waist, you know? <laughs> wow. I mean, these are the things you see that just, you know, they're irreplaceable as rewards 
when you're trying to improve the quality of the kids' lives. And Jenny's mentioned some of the physical activity questions. Being able to buy your cheerleading uniform with the other girls. I mean, feeling confident to even go out. Those are successes. Yeah, I think that that's very important because the mental part of it, obesity plays such a big is is such a big burden on on the mentality or on you know on the psyche of the person that kind of helping them with this really helps overall being you know happier. Mm-hmm. I think this has been a very fun discussion. Are there any other things that you would like to discuss before we close? You know, I think from my standpoint, you know, in case if you're a parent listening or if you're a general person interested in weight management from a physician perspective, it's really being open to helping families not feel like it's their fault when you're working with them. And if you're a parent, knowing that there are those of us out there that do specialize in this arena, and sometimes while it seems really hard, you have to advocate when you're working with your provider to sometimes find us. But if you can find us, oftentimes we're more than happy to help. And we're also more than happy to help guide general practitioners, pediatricians with regards to helping understand what it is we do and how to help work with those families. Dr. Brown, any parting thoughts? Oh, as I said, I think my parting thought is it's an exciting time. We can look the child in the eye, and I always looked them in the eye when I got to know them, and I said, you know, I know it's not your fault. But in those days, before I went to the Blackburn Obesity Course, I didn't know as much as I know now. Now I know a whole bunch of reasons why it's not their fault. But you have to be able to say it's not your fault, number one. And you have to be able to say, we can help you. All you got to do is come back. All I want you to do is come back. If I can get you back through that door, we can help you. And that's so much more true now in 2022. We have the ABOM certification for people to achieve, to be able to show people that they have an expertise in the, with the disease of obesity. And we've got algorithms that, that are putting things together. We're much better now at getting everybody to play in the same sandbox and not have things so siloed. There is no one cure for everybody for the disease. It has to be personalized. And sometimes, unfortunately, you do that by trial and error. Yep, that's true. Well, thank you so much, both of you for joining me to shed some light on, you know, this very important topic, which honestly, I lacked the knowledge on and I lacked the information because I'm obviously I'm not dealing with the pediatric population. But thank you so much for joining me. And thank you, everyone for tuning into this episode. And I'll see you all next time. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to help. Thank you so much for having us today. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.